Hey everyone, how's it going? It's the last episode of the season, and it's the second half of Emma Kay interviewing me about my book, A Dark History of Sugar. Last episode, we looked at making sugar, and this week, in the main anyway, we tackle consumption of the stuff. My book is definitely out. I've received my copies and everything. I've seen A Dark History of Sugar, in the UK at least, available everywhere. Amazon, Blackwell's, Waterstones, you name it. It's also, as I speak, May 2022, still available direct from the publisher, Pen and Sword, at a 25% discount. So check out that. Information will be in the show notes. But if you like, you can order a copy straight from me, which I will sign for you, of course. That's if you want me to. More details about all of that at the end. I'm trying to keep the pre-waffle to a minimum. The only other thing I'm going to say is that I'll be giving away a couple of copies on the book. One copy on Twitter and one on the blog. So make sure you keep an eye on those. Again, more details at the end and links in the show notes. So here we go, the second part of the interview. Emma Kay talking to me. We talk about the rise of junk food, levels of consumption of sugar, the liberal use of sugars in preparatory food, the tobaccification of sugar, sweeteners and more. We're also pretty honest about our own bad eating habits. We do also talk about ways that we could perhaps turn things round. It's not all bleakness. Another thing, there's a very minor swear in today's episode. I didn't think it was even one worth pointing out, but I'd be on Twitter and perhaps it is worth pointing out. But it's not an F-bomb or anything like that, so don't worry. So, last episode, we talked about colonialism and making sugar and slavery. This one, we're looking inward and looking at Britain itself... But before we move on to our eating habits, we talk a little bit about the British and the abolition of slavery. Okay, off we go. We were just talking about that kind of boom in sugar, really. Tea, coffee, cakes, biscuits. It was all beginning to kind of come in 1700s, 1800s. Coffee, tea and chocolate are bitter, much nicer with a bit of sugar. So it really yeah. helped kind of um, the... English and British Empire really snowball. I mean, sugar is is the British Empire, unfortunately, and sugar is slavery. You know, that's that's how meshed yeah. they are. The two together. are inter- yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, co- it's called the um, the sugar slave complex. You can't pull sugar and slavery apart. They're just the same thing. But there's all Absolutely. the offshoots. So there's the the coffee, the tea, the chocolate. There was the fancy yeah. goods being shipped over. You know, to mm. all the rich planters. There was, you know, everybody was. Directly or indirectly, either in whole or in part, all their money, all their goods, whatever they produced was going to the mm. plantations. You know, it, it got into, infiltrated every bit of society. There's no escaping mm. that. Even if you were pretty poor, you were probably working for somebody who was selling stuff to oh, the plantations. Yeah. Yeah. So it was ingrained. So people knew it was slaves. They'd maybe seen some black slaves in Britain being treated not too badly. So everyone was thinking, well, this is fine. And it's cheaper now. I can afford it. Or I can have it twice a week instead of once a week now. Keeping it with the Joneses was unfortunately more important. But I suppose people started realising it when they were visiting. So through the whole time, Quakers went over and visited and they were appalled by it. Anti-war, anti-slavery, you know, the whole time. They came back. People didn't really want to hear. But eventually people did start to listen. It took, uh, you know, small societies to be created, mainly made up of housewives, you know, of well-to-do families who had some time on their hands, <laughs> Quakers, and a couple, a smattering, I suppose, of um, freed slaves, because there weren't too many around. But they all worked together. They eventually got the attention of William Wilberforce, the MP. Mm. He was an independent MP. 
the 1780s. Eventually, he, he put through acts and bills, or he tried to. Nobody would take any notice. But slowly, they just chipped away and chipped away and chipped away. And fair enough, it went through Parliament, I think, 17 times before yeah, finally yeah. people started yeah. to look up and really, really like, we need to abolish abolish it. But it took decades of people trying to show how horrific it was. Uh, and, it, and it got through eventually. It got through eventually. Society changed, didn't it? Society began changing as well. So there was more empathy coming in, wasn't there? It was more charitable work, more, you know, people were becoming more aware of poverty and all those sort of things and that and that class division. And that yeah. took a long, long time to filter down, didn't it? Some people come around to them very quickly. Some people it takes, you know, a while. It, it got there eventually. Yeah. The, the Whigs really picked up on it. They, they were kind of the most liberal party at the time. They really picked up on it. And it was the big issue for that general election. They won and... All of a sudden, they didn't just squeak the win. It was a landslide win. Yeah. That's where the history books usually at school stops. Hooray! (laughs) We abolished slavery. (laughs) And everyone lived happily ever after. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, no, the exploitation stories only just got going, it turns out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You talk about the Quakers, but they were involved as well. You know, they were heavily involved in the trade they did change a lot of thinking and the ways of thinking about yeah. it. You know, they were, you know, they were still making money out of it. Well, you're right, actually, because actually to go back a bit to the beginnings of the plantations, Quakers were there saying this is really cruel. But in fact, they didn't yeah. actually say it took them a while to come around to it. Yeah. Yeah. So I have to correct myself because they, they thought the conditions need to be nicer. They never said we need to stop slavery. But they said the conditions were offering to improve to it. to make the money. You know, it's like, it, it, it just, you know, one example, when you look at the cocoa trade, you know, the chocolate trade, mm-hmm. they pull out of one area because it's a dreadful shocking what's happening in, you know, Sao Tome or something. Mm-hmm. And then, but what they did is just move a bit further up the coast and start somewhere else. And it's yeah. like, oh, you know, and that was the early 20th century, you know? Yeah. So you just think, gosh, you know, it's the hypocrisy, really. It's very difficult to... You know, get into the mind of the mindset of what was happening then, wasn't it? For every good deed some someone did, there was a dozen other dreadful deeds. It just never sort of balanced. No, <laughs> you know, no. everything yeah. was um, underhand, and everything. You know, ah, oh, it was just ugh. so yeah, cynical. I know, I know. So anyway, let's go. Let's move on because it, it does get a bit depressing, doesn't it? From one depressing thing to another. I read somewhere that world sugar consumption in 2018 <laughs> was around 172 million tons a year. Um, mm, so delicious. what was it like in the past? What were people kind of eating? How much sugar were people eating? Let's go a bit further forward, sort of the 1800s, 19, you know, 1900s. Loads. They were eating loads of sugar. <laughs> Uh, 1880s, 31 kilos of sugar per person. Okay. At this point, everyone is eating sugar, loads and loads of sugar. Different qualities. So your working classes are probably eating a lot of putting molasses in their tea. How did they even taste the tea? With black treacle in the tea. I know, exactly. I mean, I didn't put that bit in the book, but it's like, what are they doing? You may just eat, just drink the treacle anyway. I know, it's funny, isn't it? <laughs> in fact, it was tea, isn't it? It's a state symbol, yeah. I suppose. So it works out about 85 kilo, uh, eighty five grams a day. What's that? About three ounces a day in old yeah. money? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Something like that. It sneaks up to around the First World War, maybe 41 kilos per person. 
And then 1930s, so kind of between the wars, it's like a hundred, in the hundreds of kilos a year. Wow, that's a massive shift, isn't it? Yeah. That's a huge shift. Why do you think there was such a huge shift after the First World War? It was rationed in the First World War, Mm. and it was the, for the people who were at home, it was the worst thing about the war. That's not having sugar. Actually, that was, yeah, that was the worst (laughs) thing. Not the fighting. God, I don't care about that. Well, they didn't see the fighting. For for them at home... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the worst thing was having no yeah, sugar. No, I, yeah. um, no, I, I and people mean. went they went nuts for it. And <laughs> this is this is when we tried to get a a sugar beet industry off the ground. Yes. It didn't quite work. And of course, unfortunately, it wasn't that much waiting time before the Second World War appeared and they hadn't got it going again. So it all just went horribly wrong. There was no sugar beet. I mean, they were still paying, subsidising West Indian planters by this time, believe it oh, or not. Yeah, they're yeah. Also, yeah, let's they're not also forget. Yeah. From, they're getting it from India, the East Indian yeah. trade. So we're managing to get sugar in, but it had to be cut down again. You know, it had to be really rationed. When they lifted rationing after the war, people went so crazy for sugar. I think they were beating each other. They were in know, withdrawal, in having withdrawal symptoms. Yeah, they had to um, ration it again for like seven, six or seven more years. Because people were just going absolutely nuts because of the lack of sugar. And I guess it was like the um, loo rolls at the beginning of the COVID epidemic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was yeah, plenty of sugar to go analogy. around. That's but a good analogy. Everyone was yeah. just filling their pockets with it because you know they hadn't <laughs> seen it for such a long time. <laughs> what were the repercussions of that? You do go into a bit of detail about the health issues with sugar, uh, looking at it in a slightly more contemporary um, perspective. You you look at you know dental care and uh, diabetes and things like that when did people start to become aware of that sort of thing do you think well dental problems pretty quickly when people start first getting caries and cavities they didn't think it was sugar because it was thought to be so medicinal that it couldn't be sugar and they thought it was little tooth worms making burrows in your teeth (laughs) but by the time you know you've got to um Queen Elizabeth with her black teeth, you yes. know, her, her infamous black teeth. Uh, people knew it was sugar, sugar doing that. Didn't stop them. People think it was a, a bit of a statement to have black teeth, by the way. You no. know, that, that's a, well, that's a common misconception. Yeah. That you'd be there kind of grinning with showing off all your black teeth because it meant I can a afford bit like, sugar. I think I read somewhere that didn't, didn't they all try and sort of dye their hair kind of a reddish colour as well, ladies, so so that they could have that sort of similar colour hair, colour to um, Elizabeth. But the thing is, uh, Queen Elizabeth hated her black teeth. She was very self-conscious. People were self-conscious about it, like they would be today. Yeah. Because with black teeth come stinking breath. You know, they were. Yeah. she had a rotten mouth. It was gross. Uh, Louis the Fourteenth banned smiling in his court. <laughs> really, because of yeah, that. Because of that. Wow, yeah. I'm surprised um, they didn't find something that could whiten them. In so, you they know, did. they weren't out they used, looking. They used cloths that were dusted with ground pearls and powdered sugar. <laughs> oh, you're joking! Really? Oh, that's so funny. I didn't Idiots. know that. That's great. I never knew that actually. That's yeah, hilarious. You're right, idiots. Total idiots. <laughs> let's let's file them down with basically sandpaper <laughs> and then shove sugar in. <laughs> oh uh, quite early on, they did begin to think that things like um, diabetes, type two diabetes, was caused by it in the 18th century. That began to really? get that, popular. They couldn't prove because this was around the time when doctors tasted urine and like mm, that's definitely that's sweet. Cool. 
Yes, uh, but they couldn't prove that that was the source of the sweetness. They didn't have the right. you know the, the chemical knowledge and techniques, yeah. um, but they suspected that's what it was. But it, I mean, people didn't weren't even cutting sugar out for Lent because they thought it was medicinal. So mm. people were just not. You know, Pandora's box was open. I guess that's mm. what I'm trying to say. People didn't slow down. People were making money. And you and I have talked about this before. By the time you get to Victorian times, you've got really big confectioners, chocolate yeah. bars, all that kind of stuff. And you get the really aggressive advertising. But then it all starts to go hor- horribly wrong. People start getting obese. You know, obesity becomes a problem first in America, but it begins to trickle over here. Yeah. And this is when you get the soft, what people call the tobaccofication of sugar. Because Tob- tobacco would not a bad Say it again. The tobaccofication. Tobacco- oh, that's really hard to say. <laughs> yeah, it's the first time I've said it out loud. <laughs> Well, that's really good. I, I can't actually it say it. Times. So, <laughs> tobaccofication. Right. Because, of course, tobacco had been getting a bad rep for causing lung cancer, and they'd put a load yeah. of money into big universities to get proof that there was nothing wrong with smoking. Mm. And the, they took some leaves out of Big Tobacco's book and started really showing that um, sugar, there's nothing wrong with sugar. But people were getting fat. So they used fat itself as, as the scapegoat. Fat is a much more healthy substance than sugar. Yeah. And also, it, when you kind of think about it, well, I eat fat. Oh, it turns onto the fat on my stomach or my legs or my hips or whatever. That seems fair enough. Mm. It's a bit obscure. It has sugar. It goes through these, chem- these weird chemical processes. goes into the liver gets you know, and gets transported. That's kind of tenuous. Mm. But in fact, sugar is more important when it comes to causing obesity than fat is. Mm. Poor old fat. And Car- Carolyn Steele, I don't know if you've read Hungry City by Carolyn Steele and uh, Cytopia, mm-hmm. you know, it's one of the things she talks about in there is like, we've had decades of miserable fat-free cooking because of this campaign by sugar to make fat the scapegoat. The evil one, yeah. Yeah. And of course, what did all these healthy alternatives, these 1% or 0% foods have in? Loads of sugar. I mean, that is such an interesting thing. And people are really suddenly beginning to come to understand that more and more, aren't they? You know, is that sort of healthy aspect of, again, in inverted commas, where, you know, you have these sort of granola bars and, Mm, you know, but they're actually... mm -hmm laden down with sugary things and yogurts and things laden down with you know none of it is is good for you and it's all labeled as as a health alternative i mean shocking really isn't it that market is enormous yeah and sugar finds itself in, in all the junk foods and, and preparatory foods you know um yeah. if you if you're making a curry for example that's going to be a ready meal it can't yeah. really taste that much of too much of curry because it's going to the masses and some people don't like things too strong so you have to cut back on the real flavor and you got to put salt and sugar in it to make yeah. it taste of something yeah heinz baked beans right i, I eat heinz baked beans so you know, I eat. but do you eat the sugar free ones well that's what i was about to say that it just exposes how bad quality the ingredients are <laughs> you take the sugar and the salt out or down it actually tastes of nothing yeah you may as well eat air or something so it just exposes it and sugar's out it's in the down meal sauce it's in your tomato ketchup it's in your sticky whatever. wings or, or it's, whatever. It's, it's everywhere it, isn't it? if it's processed it's in it yeah it's got to have a long it's just just to increase the shelf life if nothing else yeah you make a point in the book don't you about saying how everyone needs to get back in the kitchen and start cooking which is great and i've said that before as well i've said that in books that i've written but mm. it's so hard isn't it? it i think you know because people's lives are so busy now trying to find that work-life balance 
and to actually go back, you know, to try and start cooking yeah. from fresh is, is, is almost know, impossible for some people. No, I, easy, I, I realise that it's easier said than done. But if we want to reduce our sugar and, and salt as well intake, yeah. is just to cook, cook yourself. First of all, you see how much goes in there and you might not put so much in. If you... Um, put the amount that it says in their recipe and you're like oh my god i put one and a half teaspoons of salt into that casserole that ain't nowhere near how much salt's going in if it's a you know a ready meal so i think for that reason but yeah i realize it's not as simple as people cooking and i realize that when i'm busy i've got book deadlines you know i've I've usually got four different projects on at once the first thing to go out of the window is cooking at home yeah I start eating loads of sugar and yeah. uh, I I make sure I say very clearly whilst I'm being disparaging about the world's population about being so crap at eating too much sugar that I'm also telling myself. In fact, it was almost a letter to myself sometimes. Like, Neil, you absolute idiot. When I had my restaurant, um, we'd sort of run out, I don't know, of lettuce or something. So I'd have to go and yeah. buy some lettuce. <laughs> and I would stop back at... Sainsbury's other supermarkets are available and I would buy five jam donuts for 85p which should be illegal to sell five jam donuts for 85p you can't make one at home for 85p and in the drive the two minute drive home I'll have eaten all five of them oh my oh my gosh just, really just waiting at the traffic wow. lights shoveling them in but did so, you burn it all off running around your restaurant all night or? so i did luckily it wasn't too bad but i've always liked sugar and during the covid19 epidemic i i mean i've put on 10 kilos since the start of the epidemic and yeah. i've been doing a lot of home baking making buns making jam and once I've made some, because because there, you know, there is a rule in my house, if I want a hot cross bun, I've got to make a batch. But you can't, because you can't make just one, can you? You have to make 14 of them. No, I know, bastards. that's the problem. There's only so much your freezer can take as well. Yeah, and they're calling out to you, eat me. But you see, this Before, is the like, thing, I'll isn't it? During, during lockdown, people did get back in their kitchens. People were cooking, you know, people had more time and they were, you know, it went mad. And I mean, Instagram was crazy during COVID, wasn't it? Everyone posting what all yeah. the little things that they were making all day long, you know, cook, 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 bake, bake, bake. You know, it was everywhere. And now, you know, it's kind of, it's really sort of that seems to have gone out the window a bit now. Yeah, and, I'm sure some people have stuck at it, which is yeah, a good I outcome of so. a horrible time, of course. But yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, I try and promote cooking from scratch. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm promoting zero sugar. I used to do Pudding Club back in the day when I used to do pop-up restaurants. Oh, yeah. It was seven courses of puddings. That was the whole, that was the meagle. <laughs> I was basically um, um, a drug dealer, thinking about it now, enabling people. Oh, it was good, though. <laughs> I struggle with one pudding now. I do think the older you get, well, from my point, the older I get, the less food I seem to be able to consume. Like, I get really cross with myself that I can no longer eat the amount of food that I used to be able to eat because I used to eat mm. and eat and just burnt it off. But now, you know, you hit middle age and it's like, um, it just sort of sits there. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, and you're even eating less and less and it still kind of sits there. And you think, is this because it's a lifetime of eating badly? Like young people today, they are exercise freaks, aren't they? They, you know, mm-hmm. they are much more into physical fitness and, you know, but when I was younger, like, there were no six packs when I were a lad. Like, that's for sure. Yeah, you, 
God's sake, I mean, you'd never, you know, you wouldn't even, like, a gym, what's that? Like, who does that, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, it, you just, it, it wasn't on, it wasn't even on your radar, was it? Well, it wasn't for me when I was a, a no. child or a young person. No, no. It was bad food. It was, it was drinking a lot. It was, you know, not looking after myself at all. And you do sort of find that that kind of catches up with you a bit in middle age. Yeah. And, yeah. and I have, you know, I've done things like I've cut out during the week. We eat no meat now, which is quite drastic and radical. And I thought there's no way I'm going to be able to do that. And we've done it really easily, really easily. I don't even, doesn't even, you know, I don't even think about it. And so you do think, well, perhaps you could just start, you know, the thing is to just do it a little bit at a time, isn't it? And then the more you do, the more you get used to something. Yeah, small changes is a way to do it. Yeah, you think, I can't do that. My life's too I don't want to be thinking about that. I just like to have this here and that there. And I don't want to, you know, it's fine the way it is. I like my routine. But actually, if people yeah. can think a little bit out of the box, you know, you might be able to find a bit more time to just go home and make something, you know, walk to the supermarket, pick up a few things and make something at home. Just even if it's one night a week, one night a week and then you get used to it and then you think okay i might do this maybe two nights a week or something but yeah yeah i mean you can make a pasta dish yeah. in the time it takes to yeah. boil the pasta you can make yeah. the sauce from scratch you know exactly. it can't it can be done you know we, yeah. we've lost our skills but you know we've been force fed all these ready meals and things like that i mean just to put it into a bit of context maybe the big problem in in the uk was advertising junk food to kids. Yeah. That was the first, because of course the, the government were expected to do something and there's been yeah. quite a few things, you know, to help us cut down on our sugar. Yeah. In the 2000s, for the budget, 450 million pounds spent on advertising junk food on TV. Wow. That's quite a figure. And 75% of that amount was advertising to children. Yeah, I can imagine. Quite quickly, I'm sure, well, hopefully it didn't take much lobby, lobbying at, at Parliament for the government to come in and go, OK, we need to ban advertising junk food. You know, And but then there's been other things. People have tried to, there was Coke Life. Do you remember in the green can? It was it was Coke, but yeah. it had less sugar what in it. What happened to that? Is that not? Well, that... there was Milky Bar did a lower sugar version. Oh, yeah, I mean, they've all tried not it. even talk about Nestle's at the minute. <laughs> Dirty word. I have to cut out my expletives. Um, I mean, they've always been, you know, yeah. what's, but they're really yeah. putting the tin out on it over the last month or two, haven't they? Yeah, but doing low sugar versions. But given the choice, we don't do it by half measures. We either go full, you know, Diet Coke. Yeah. Or we go for the regular Coke with the full amount of sugar or the proper Milky Bar and stuff like that. Whilst they've tried to reduce sugar, whilst giving consumer choice we don't make the right choices, which means why to give us a choice in the first place? Yeah. If, you, if there's no difference between the milky bar with less sugar in yeah, and there's the other one, why do you just make that the lower sugar one the, the standard one? But that's taking away our choices and our rights, apparently. What I'd like to talk to you about is that, that's, you know, just very quickly is um, where you sit with uh, alternative sugars like aspartame or a more natural stevia, because mm. that is your choice now, isn't it? Basically, if you're going That's to have I a low for. sugar option, you just fill it through with artificial sweeteners. And you do touch on that in the book as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's two things really that we need to admit to ourselves is yeah. we, 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 we can't cut down. So either 
we use the kindest form of sugar, which I'll maybe mention in a second, or we go for a, a sugar alternative. And one of the things I actually went out to do writing the book, I kind of want to make sure that um, it's sweetness that's bad, not just sugar. And I really set out to kind of try and say, no, sweetness are bad too. But I could find very little evidence, actually, that sweet sweeteners were actually bad for us. Well, they are. There's quite a few reports about, especially with uh, things like, you know, behavioural issues and all kinds of stuff. So there's some, some reports are actually saying that it's worse than sugar. It's it's quite interesting. Yeah, I was kind of looking at sort of physiological yeah. things, I suppose, because I'd, I'd heard people talk for ages about, um, oh, well, you you drink sugar-free, you know, sh- uh, Diet Coke or whatever, um, there's no sugar in it, but your body tastes the sweetness, mm. expects sugar, so you mm. squirt out a lot of insulin anyway, and people come diabetic, even mm. on diet. And I'd heard that several times, there's no evidence for it. And even things, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I was looking for other things, and yes, they'd seem to find negative effects, but when people are having really large, huge amounts of it... The thing is... You are having huge amounts of it because if if everything suddenly becomes sugar free and it's replaced with an, an artificial sweetener, you are then just having huge amounts of it. And I know I mean, a huge um, amount of anything's bad for us. Yeah, when we look at exactly. Gluten. But aren't you just <laughs> replacing one thing with another? And again, you talk about this, which is really interesting, which I don't think people realise either, is that you know putting fruit juice into things is not a way of you know making something no. better for you because as no. you say, the only the good bit of the fruit is you know when you're eating the the whole thing which is where the roughage and the fiber is you know squeezing everything out all you're getting is the you know the fructose or the sugars that that are in that you know from the fruit yeah i mean i think there's 20 is it 25 percent weight per volume sugar in fresh orange juice i I don't know a regular glass 300 mils something like that It's, it's about six oranges and I can neck back a carton of orange juice, never mind a glass. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that yeah. doesn't touch the sides. Exactly. Um, but if you try to eat six oranges, you get pretty, <laughs> you're not going to be getting through that amount of sugar no. because it's bulked out. I have seen, you know, I have a, a young son and I see what happens to him if he has too much fruit juice. And I see what also happens to him when he has, you know, non-sugar like lemonade, which is just full of aspartame, you know, mm-hmm. and it's very similar behavioural trait. Yeah, no, I do agree with you absolutely that um, anything kind of lab-made is just... Exactly. Even even <laughs> if you can't prove any ill effects, it just seems intrinsically wrong. Yeah. But uh, I do think it's maybe the lesser of two evils for people who are... I mean, you're thinking about... I mean, I'm thinking maybe more about America who are, you know, drinking 64 fluid ounces size well, soda, cats, you know, which is, is ridiculous. And it's obvious that that... Um, you know, in that case, it's a, using a sweetener would be better than sticking to regular sugary soda drinks. Um, yeah. But things like stevia, you know, which are natural, natural, I think they're, they're going to be the ones that, that do it. And uh, my old boss that I used to work with um, used to have a stevia plant and we'd kind of pick the leaves off and eat the leaves. And it's it's good. It's a very odd sweetness. It's a fake sweetness. and it, It's yeah, not going to we... quite do the job. And of course, it hasn't got the chemistry that um exactly. sugar has that's one of its saving graces you know you yeah. can't make jam you can't make uh sculptures you know you can't make a cake so you know it, it can't do all the work that sugar does so the other side is to do kinder things when it comes to sugar if you're in the uk or in europe buy sugar beet yeah derived sugar so silver spoon in, in britain people don't realize that silver spoons can you British talk sugar. a little bit about how we grow uh sugar beet here in the uk yeah quite a lot of our farmlands put aside for growing sugar beet it, it grows in temperate areas 
It was the, it was the Germans that were really good at it, really. You know, oh, right. they, they okay. really got the properly got the ball rolling. Yeah. Uh, it requires much less refining. It can be done using centrifuges and there's less water in it, so it doesn't have to be boiled as much. There's not that kind of process of refining and refining and refining. You put you might not have noticed, but when you go to the supermarket and you buy silver spoon, all you can buy is white sugar. You can't buy silver spoon demerara sugar or light brown sugar because those are all stages of the sugar cane, you know, ch- changing sugar cane to sugar. Sugar beet goes basically from sugar peat, you take the roughage out, you take the water out, you're left with white sugar. Yeah. So from an environmental point of view, it's much better. And of course, workers in Europe, well, are least supposed to be, you know, paid a, a living wage. Yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, yeah. sugar manufacturers, you know what they're like, it's you know, um, exploitations carried on. Uh, but I mean... Over in the South America and parts of America, unfortunately, you know, um, people are still being exploited. Oh gosh, yeah. For sugar, so yeah, you know, if you're buying, so if you if you can't buy sugar from sugar beet, and it has to be from sugar cane, don't buy white sugar. Mm. Buy unrefined, you know, the golden caster sugar. Yeah, that hasn't gone I through that fine. So, you, yeah. you can't tell the difference. Mm-hmm. A, a meringue, you can still make a meringue. Mm. The, the, the jelly or jam will still set. Yeah. You won't even know it's a color difference. Yeah. With their final product. So that's fine. Yeah. So, so do that and make sure there's some mark on it somewhere that it's fairly traded. Mm. Yeah. Because if there isn't a mark on there, it hasn't been. Yeah, exactly. That's good. That's good <laughs> advice. That's great advice. I am, th- we probably should leave it there. There's massive to talk about. So much more in the There's book. There's so much to talk about. We've missed out so much, but My you know, goodness. it's a big subject. Yeah, it's a massive subject. And uh, it's a wonderful book, and and I and it deserves to do really well, and it's it's telling a really important story, and it's giving a really good message as well to people. So, do hope that people appreciate it as much as me. I'm sure they will. And thank you for letting me hijack your podcast. <laughs> Just me. you know, you've been a really good guest, actually, Liam. Oh, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come back again. It's lovely talking to you. Oh, speaking to you too. Thanks again to Emma for stepping in to interview me. I really enjoyed doing this with her. Emma's book, A Dark History of Chocolate, was published last year, and she appeared on a podcast to talk about it last December. So if you haven't listened to that conversation, go check it out. Her next book is almost ready for release, and it looks great as well. It's A History of Herbalism. It's out in June 2022 and is also published by Pen and Sword History. I'm sure she'll be back in season four to have a chat about it with me. We've talked for a couple of episodes now, but we've barely scratched the surface of the content of the book, A Dark History of Sugar. There's so much more to it. As I said, it is out now at all main bookshops, at least in the UK. I'm not sure what's going on in the rest of the world. It seems to have been put back in North America. It could be late June, early July. Who knows? When I know, I'll let you know. If you want to buy a copy of A Dark History of Sugar directly from me, you can do. I'm selling it for £18. The recommended retail price is £20. If you're in the UK, postage and packing is £2.85. Outside of the UK, well, it's whatever the going rate is. I sent one out to the US and it was like £24 to send it. So if you're listening from outside of the UK and fancy a copy, I'm just forewarning you. The postage and packing could be pricey. But contact me through email if you want to get one, neil at britishfoodhistory.com. If you follow me on Twitter or Instagram, my DMs are always open.
Easter eggs. There's two Easter eggs to go with this episode. One is the blog post with my recipe for digestives. I mentioned that last week. I haven't got around to doing it, but as I speak, it's written. So it'll definitely be out in the next day or two. I write in the book, but it wasn't discussed by Emma and I, was the fact that there's a lot of sugary foods that were sold and are still sold as something healthy in some way. Uh, examples of this is Lucasade, Pepsi, Special K, the breakfast cereal, not the horse tranquilizer, and the humble digestive biscuit is also an example of this. The other Easter egg is, well, it's a bit of pre-chat from Emma and I. We started the interview three times and went off on tangents. It was all really interesting and some of it was really relevant, but I found it hard to splice it into the podcast. So I've just added it here in a block. We discussed the difficulties I ran into writing the book, uh, feeling the pressure writing about slavery as the Black Lives Matter protests were actually happening. The problem of talking about slavery when you're both white and English, and in Emma's case, if you're a woman too, and for those who want to become a historian, why you needn't worry if you don't know Latin and you have a certain amount of trouble remembering dates. Subscribers get access to my Easter eggs page with loads of other extras, deleted scenes, extra bits. There's an extra mini season on there that I made. And there are those blog posts just for subscribers, like the Digestives one. You can find those on the blog by searching the keyword term premium content or by following the hyperlink on the Easter eggs tab. If you want to start a subscription, go to the support the blog and podcast tab. A subscription is just £3 a month and everything I receive will go back into making more content. Alternatively, you can donate a one-off virtual pint or coffee. In fact, you can donate any amount you like on there if you fancy just leaving a one-off donation. But there is no pressure. I can't emphasise that enough. I'm always slightly embarrassed when I have to read that bit out. But please like and subscribe, leave reviews, tell a friend or two. I would be eternally grateful if you did. Every single one counts. To keep tabs on me, especially because I'm going to be doing these competitions, go to BritishFoodHistory.com. You can follow my blog there or follow me on social media. I tend to favour Twitter over Instagram, but I'm trying to do more Instagram. Be patient with me. If you've got any questions, comments or queries about anything from this episode or any other episode in the podcast so far, please get in touch via email at neil at BritishFoodHistory.com or Twitter at neilbuttery or Instagram at Dr. Underscore Neil Underscore Buttery. Also, because we're at the end of the season now, let me know if you've got any ideas for episodes or if you come across some British food history in the news or in an article somewhere. I would love to know about them. There was meant to be a listener suggestion in this season, but for various reasons it didn't happen, but I'll make sure it's in the next season. So really, all that is left to say is thank you to my wonderful guests this season, Alessandra Pino, Kevin Geddes, Peter Atkins, and of course Emma Kay. But my biggest thank you goes to you lot, my listeners. The listenership is growing markedly with each episode, which is fantastic. And I'll see you later in the year for another delicious oven fresh batch of our rural treats.